This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. Highlights from just one of our seasons of programs on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider. And if you're looking to hear or read more about any of the excerpts that you'll hear today, go to peacetalksradio.com and look for the 2017 season. That included, not surprisingly, an episode that Suzanne did on how to deal with political stress and how to coexist with people who diametrically oppose your political point of view. Suzanne talked with three counselors, including Irene Green from Minneapolis. The current social political situation has caused a lot of problems in many families where there are political differences. And this has caused a lot of pain. And certainly if people want to communicate with each other and try to maybe accept those differences. I have people in my family and people that I've worked with who have decided we're going to agree to disagree for the sake of the larger sake of love and goodness in our family. But interpersonally, people are, can be very, very hurt by someone crossing out their vote at the poll that says who they can love or where they can go to the bathroom or where they can live. It's absolutely essential that people find ways, common touch points. Chicago area therapist Nancy Molitor. Especially if they're in a situation where they're feeling increasingly polarized, whether it's at work, uh, in their community, in within their own family. I'm hearing lots of very sad stories where people are coming to get, you know, being invited to graduation parties and weddings and very important events that people have looked, families have looked forward to for a long time. And somehow somebody brings up the subject of politics and the whole tenor of the situation goes downhill. Uh, In many cases, what I tell people is, you know, if you know that your brother-in-law feels very differently politically than you do, stay away from bringing up that subject. It seems obvious, but you would be amazed at how many people don't realize <laughs> that that's not a good idea. Um, and Or they, they get drawn into it. They let themselves get baited and drawn into a discussion. Nancy, when you say we should find common touch points, as psychologists, give us some examples of what those could be. Well, that's a very good question. Most people can agree around things like children's well-being, uh, you know, eating healthy food, <laughs> you know, our, our kids need a better public school, right, or, or something that, that, you know, is, is uh, not going to be conflictual. And there's usually things that aren't conflictual. It just takes a little more time sometimes to, to find them. Nancy Molitor from the Chicago area, Irene Green from the Minneapolis area, Both of them have told Suzanne that some degree of avoidance of those who disagree with you might be in order, or at least careful, conscious conversation. New Mexico therapist Bob Thompson has more to say about that. Well, of course we should be talking to each other. In the absence of talk, we have oftentimes aggressive action, and that's not one of the things that I think is useful to any of us. So if we're going to resolve differences of opinion or different belief systems, we have to talk about it. We have to come to understand. I always think of Gandhi when the Civil War was going on and he was starving himself as a protest. And the two leaders of the factions came to him and said, you, you have to start eating. And he said, well, I will. As soon as the, as soon as the Civil War stops, I'll, I'll start eating again. And one of the men said, you know, there's no there's no uh, way out for me because I've done horrible things. I've killed women and children and babies. And, and Gandhi said, well, there is a way for you. 
And the guy looked at him like he was out of his mind. He's been starving, so clearly he must be out of his mind. And he said, what you have to do, he said, there's thousands of orphans out there now because of this war. He said, you have to go out and you have to get a child who's an orphan. But it has to be a child from the other side. And you have to bring them into your home and raise them with that religion that you're fighting about. Their religion. That teaches understanding in a profound way. I think that's what we have to do in the world when we have all these people with different ideas. If we're not communicating and really understanding each other because we can't listen to each other, then trouble happens. You know, he's suggesting if you are really in disagreement with somebody to the point where you'd be willing to do violence, it probably would make sense to really come to understand that way much better than you do because you, you probably don't. And Bob, what if you want to engage, say go to lunch or talk to a person who's on the political spectrum opposite of you? My own sense about what helps uh, communication go better when people have very different views is to be able to articulate clearly what the other person's view is to the point where they're saying, you really do understand where I'm coming from and why I'm coming from there. That tends to have defenses go down. The person doesn't feel like they have to turn the volume up and scream louder because I didn't hear them, because they know I did hear them, because I've just articulated exactly their position to the point where they're shaking their head, that's exactly right. We've made it right for them. And then we're in a position to talk about what it's like from our point of view, and if, and it usually does, start to stir them up because it's so different than their own, we can say, did I understand you? And they will probably say, yeah. And then you say, well, then try to afford me the opportunity of understanding me too. It helps. Albuquerque Counselor Bob Thompson from our show on political stress. And as we said more at peacetalksradio.com in the June 2017 episode. An ongoing conflict in the U.S., it seems, is hate speech. Circumstances put it back in the news all too often, raising the question of how should citizens challenge and oppose hate movements like white nationalism. In 2017, the high-profile Charlottesville, Virginia confrontations between Nazi demonstrators and counter-demonstrators led to this panel that included priest and activist John Deere, diversity trainer Tanya Covington, and first heard here hate movement researcher Brian Levin. When you see people who are going against white nationalists and Nazis, the most loathsome people around, I want you to consider a couple of things. Number one, I know people who are former Nazis who have repudiated their prejudice and are now, and are now making the world a better place. Later in the program, we're going to hear from a, a former white supremacist who made that transition, as you just described. And we'll listen to that later. But go ahead, Brian, your second point. My second point is not a utilitarian one. My second point is that if your movement embraces violence in any way that significantly changes what our highest traditions are with the use of violence, which is to eschew it, except in the most urgent of circumstances and with some kind of judicial approval or review, 
um, you're killing the moral legitimacy of any cause that you're associated with. And I want to be clear here. We can talk all about white nationalists. They're terrible. I've studied them for years. But your audience is a, is a sophisticated one. And there, there is a splintered group of people who are not part of the progressive movement that's wearing hats and undertaking loud and very clear protests. These are folks who are against our system of government. They're either anarchists or people that think our form of government is so infected that it is illegitimate. And their most street-worthy presentation of that is their belief that the First Amendment is a tool of tyranny against oppressed people, not that we should have protection for viewpoints that we don't like, which means, by the way, that we can leave them on the shelf as well. Violence doesn't accomplish any of the ends that a reasonable and competent person who is against bigotry would undertake. Well, I can tell you when I was watching the Charlottesville 2017 event that I was thinking that uh, some of the counter-protesters got into skirmishes with the white supremacy marchers or overlooking key components of effective nonviolent protest. Uh, freedom marchers and lunch counter-protesters of the 60s were trained to take the abuse and, and the violence without resisting. They were taught not to intervene when fellow protesters were being savagely beaten. Same message from Gandhi, right, John Deere? I mean, essentially. Right, and so I agree with Brian. Um, violence doesn't work, and violence in response to violence always leads to further violence. It's not going to transform anybody, and we need to change all these people. We all need to change, and everybody's redeemable, but uh, a violent response to these kind of uh, demonstrations of, of hate uh, will only in inflame the situation, and the media loves that. Whereas active, engaged nonviolence, we know statistically now, works. And that's what is not also being reported. The studies coming out, we've never had it before in, in history. And the greatest example is Dr. Erica Chenoweth, mm -hmm. Why Civil Resistance Works. She's been on our program. Yeah, yeah she's studied mm -hmm. every violence situation in the world in the last 106 years and has proven that nonviolent response uh, and that works to end a war nonviolently is much more powerful and effective and leads to more nonviolent social democratic societies. So you apply that in our personal lives, in these protests against the Klan, and all the other wars in the world. This is our, Dr. King is still right. Nonviolence is our only hope. It's our only, it's a methodology for social change that works to transform everyone nonviolently. It uses nonviolent means for a nonviolent end. But you've got to train people, mm -hmm. yeah. and you've got to teach people, and you've got to fund it, and they're spending a trillion dollars on educating violence. We're all brainwashed in violence. And how could people who are losing their power, white, ignorant people, you know, who have put their identity in that, they don't know anything but violence. And, you know, so our responsibility is we all have to be involved in the movement. We have to change this country to fund the education of nonviolent conflict resolution for every human being on the, on the planet, really. And, uh, and to institutionalize nonviolent conflict resolution in every city, mm -hmm. in every country, between all the countries. This is if we're going to survive. Yeah. Well, obviously, that's kind of our point with the radio program, too. But 
And I do want to talk to the people who are just listening now who may or may not be lucky enough to run into that kind of training sometime. This may be the only training they get, what they're hearing us say today. So, you know, I want to talk specifically to them, and you mentioned the media. Okay, let me just use that as an example. Sometime after the Charlottesville, I guess it was, again, still August 2017, I'm watching uh, Trump's speech in Arizona, and I'm watching what was apparently peaceful protests that all of a sudden got busted up by a couple people throwing a water bottle, and the Arizona police start firing tear gas. That's what's on TV. So what do we say to, Tanya, I'll direct this to you, to um, people uh, anywhere on the um, sympathies spectrum or the political spectrum watching that, how do they process what John started to suggest about what media shows and what they need to show against what is real? What questions should they be asking? What further information should they be getting to counteract those powerful pictures. I think um, I certainly uh, agree with with John that we have to work on changing society. And I think that one of the ways, and I know this is difficult for an awful lot of people, is to stop playing to the media. You know, there's a uh, old media saying, if it bleeds, it leads. And whatever is the most violent or the most disruptive is what they're going to put on TV. And yet one of the things that we know and that we need to be talking more about and that I'm really grateful that we're um, seeing it in uh, social media is the hundreds of other marches that are going on that are peaceful. The times when thousands of people show up to talk about something or, or to have a peaceful march, those don't make the media. But they're making, they're making social media, and I feel like we need to be demanding of the media that that gets as much press or more as the violence so that um, that's how you begin to change society is when you show that, you know what, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a few you know, people out there being violent, but look at the thousands. Yeah you know, that are being nonviolent. The thousands are saying we won't stand for hate. They should be getting as much press um, or more um, as the the KKK does. Tanya Covington there with John Deere and Brian Levin. And we also aired on our program a 2010 interview with former skinhead Frank Mink. What happened was a, a Jewish guy took me under his wing and taught me the antique business. And he knew that I was still a Nazi. I had a big swastika on my neck. And and uh, he wasn't like a, a religious Jewish guy, but he was definitely Jewish. And he, uh, one day he was giving me the pep talk because I used to always say how stupid I was. Like it was just a thing I always said. I don't know why. You know, probably the inner self felt that way. And one day he just gave me this pep talk about how I'm the most street smartest person he's ever met. And I remember as he's talking to me, I had my Nazi boot, I had my Doc Martens, all my red laces in it. And we're in a truck driving through New Jersey. So there's not much to look at. You know, it's New Jersey. So you just kind of talk to each other. And as he kept talking to me about how street smart I was, and uh, I remember looking down at my boots and just being so embarrassed, just absolutely embarrassed. Here's this guy who is just a great, great human being in my life. And and I still hate him, you know. And so that was the day I kind of just came to terms with it. And when people say, you know, if racist people come and say, 
you know, what about this and racism and, you know, ain't you proud to be white and all this stuff. And I know that where that pride comes from is not really, it's really not a pride. It's more of a, we hate other people because of, well, God consistently, a higher power came into my life and it consistently kept proving that belief wrong to me. He kept putting people in my life at the wrong and the right times and saying, Frank, judge now. Like, you're the biggest screw-up I got going on this earth. And I, I was. I was a criminal. I was a thug. I was a liar. I was all that stuff. And uh, and so God finally slapped me for the last time upside the head. That's Frank Mink, author of Autobiography of a Former Skinhead. It's Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls. Remember, find links to much more on all of these topics online at peacetalksradio.com under our 2017 season. Another show from that season featured Suzanne Kreider asking if overpopulation was still a threat to peace on the planet, the way it was predicted it would be back in the 1960s. John Seeger of Population Connection was one of our guests. We are undergoing a vast species extinction, the likes of which has never been seen during our time on this planet. It's happened before, but that was before we, we showed up, if you will, evolved into Homo sapiens. So that's one major impact that we're having on all of the other species on this planet. We're having a great impact on the lives of uh, the humans here. Some of us are doing quite well, but for billions of us, every day is a struggle, a struggle to get enough food to eat, a struggle to find clean water, a struggle simply to survive. And those challenges become worse as we become more crowded. John, Paul Ehrlich wrote a book in 1968, The Population Bomb, and he predicted things like mass starvation. He wasn't exactly right about that, but he didn't get all his projections exactly right. But I'm curious, what's your opinion of his original book? When Dr. Ehrlich wrote The Population Bomb uh, back in 1968, the United States was undergoing a dramatic fertility transition. Back in the 1950s, the average American family was about 3.7, 3.8 children. It dropped by nearly 50% in just 20 years. So we were undergoing this enormous change to smaller families ourselves, and that helped people connect the personal with the global. Now that Americans have smaller families, by and large, I think it's more difficult for people because they look around their own communities, they look at their own lives, and they say, well, we're already having smaller families. It seems like the problem's been fully addressed. And yet, if you look at it globally, it hasn't. So I think when you can't connect what you see out your own window on a given day with a global challenge, it can be difficult to put it all together. John Seeger, tell us more about what Population Connection is doing to address the population issue. What we do at Population Connection are two things. One, we engage in population education. We train about 12,000 kindergarten through 12th grade teachers a year, and we produce a full array of curriculum materials that's used in about 50,000 schools all over the United States, most of them public schools, I might note. We have a network of 600 professional educators around the country who are volunteer teacher trainers. Many, but not all of them, but many of them are professors of education at, often at state universities, who integrate our materials into their program for teachers in training. We also offer in-service programs within school districts. 
And the first step in that process is to get approval from the state. So, for example, we have the approval in, to use the example of one state, Texas. So we meet the state standards for in-service teacher education, and we're able to go to a school district and say, here, we have some materials that fit state standards. We're approved by the state of Texas to do this, and we're able to provide this to you. We reach about 3 million school children a year. Our goal with that population education program is not to tell students what to think, but rather to get them to think about these things. The other half of our work, equally important but quite different, is grassroots advocacy on behalf of international family planning, uh, because we see that as one of the best ways to meet the challenges that we face on this planet. You can hear more with John Seeger on the topic of population and peace at peacetalksradio.com under 2017. Another guest on a show hosted by Suzanne was author David Smith, who wrote the book Peace Jobs, a student's guide to starting a career working for peace. Smith has held a lot of jobs himself working with young people. And it would be college students, could be high school students. But invariably, when I would talk about how exciting this work is and how important this work is, they would come back to me and say, well, how do I get a job doing this? Or they'd say to me, how do I get your job (laughs) how to do this? And I got to tell you, Suzanne, in the beginning, I didn't have good answers for them. Uh, And the answers that I would have for them would require many, many more years of education and many roads that they would have to travel to get to that. And that often is discouraging to young people. If you're talking to to young people of, of, of modest means who may be in community college and said, well, if you want to do peace work, you're going to have to go work at the United Nations and get a degree in diplomacy and pass the Foreign Service exam. That's really a long road and maybe not realistic for a lot of people. So I started to realize there's a different way of looking at it. One of the things that I've really come to, to, to think about a lot, Suzanne, is that when students, particularly students in college, but I think also in high school, they get excited about what they're learning, right? They learn about the world around them. And it's there that they often develop their passion and their interests. What we don't want to happen is we don't want to happen is when students graduate from college, they say, okay, now I've got to get a real job. I got to forget about all that passion and all that, all those things I was interested in. Now I got to buckle down and focus on those student loans and, you know, that kind of stuff. I don't want that. I want you to do that. I want you to find that work, but I don't want you to leave that passion behind. So I want you to figure out how to take those things that you were interested in as an undergraduate when you were a member of the Model UN or you did dialogue work or you were, you know, head of a diversity club. And how do you take that and put that into your career? That's what I'm trying to focus on. David Smith, most people think of a peace job as something like being a conflict resolver or mediator. What would you say? I would say that's uh, somewhat of a limiting way of looking at a peace job. I think there was a time that we looked at it in that way. But I have come to the conclusion, working with you a long time, that really every career, every job, uh, you can make into a peace job. Uh, You can change what you're doing, uh, change the things that you're focusing on, and really focus on building peace and resolving conflict. How do you make every job a peace job? Well, I, that's not, it's not going to be easy all the time, but I think for someone who's intentional about their career and thinks about their values and tries to incorporate their values in the work that they can, one of the things to think about is broadening what we think about as peace and peace building. Um, I think, as you were saying, you know, is it resolving conflict? Is it mediation? 
But there are a lot of other things that are related to it. Trauma healing, for instance, uh, uh, community building, uh, certain types of activities such as uh, you know, promoting well-being within the society. All of those things can be peaceful activities. So there are a lot of jobs that fall within that. David, what's the competition like for peace jobs? Well, the competition is like the competition in any field. One of the things to recognize is that when we're talking about a job that focuses on building peace, we're not necessarily talking about a different field. We're talking about nurses who do trauma work. We're talking about police officers who do restorative justice work. We're talking about teachers who focus on peer mediation in the classroom. Uh, we're talking about IT people who spend their time supporting um, uh, not-for-profits and conflict resolution organizations and developing their web pages. So we're not really talking about a particular field. We're talking about all the fields out there, but we're talking about how is it that when you get hired somewhere or you're looking for work that you make the argument that these are other things that I bring to the work to make yourself more competitive. Let's say someone wants a job in some kind of conflict-resolving or mediation-type job. Does that require a formal education? I think that's one of the challenges, I think, in some respects. And one of the ways that I think as a field we have not always prepared our students for what the marketplace looks like. Increasingly, jobs that um, have the title mediation or facilitation or ombudsperson, these are all jobs that uh, increasingly require graduate degrees. And so you do have, have specific training. What I like to argue with young people, particularly students who are in college, is that you can graduate from college with nearly every degree, any degree you imagine, and you can go out for work and you can say, look, part of what I want to do is I want to work somewhere where not only am I doing the work of the organization, but I'm creating space in my day or in my work where I can help resolve differences or help promote peace or help build sustainability. I can do those things in my work. So it's not the mediation job. It's all the other types of work that you can get a degree with that's important. And do you have any special tips for older people? I, well, I, I, one of the things I recommend, uh, uh, Daniel Pink's uh, Drive as a good, as a good read, uh, a good book in that respect. Um, I, you know, I think um, older people often, um, sometimes they're isolated, right? I think as we get older, sometimes because we're busy and we're working, we isolate ourselves. And I think finding community, getting involved in civic organizations, going back to school, I increasingly see in my graduate degree program, which is in conflict resolution, I increasingly see students in their 50s who are taking courses, not because they're pursuing a degree, but because they're just interested in the topic. So think about going back to school. You know, one of the uh, sectors of higher education I work a lot with are community colleges. And uh, I, I travel around the United States giving talks to colleges and universities on peace and conflict resolution. And a lot of times I'm talking to community college audiences. Lots of community colleges are offering courses in conflict resolution, peace building, uh, you know, dealing with differences, dialogue awareness. Um, and when you're a senior citizen, for instance, community college courses are often free. So go back and take a course. That's something to do also. David Smith, author of Peace Jobs, a student's guide to starting a career working for peace. We'll have more highlights from the Peace Talks radio series on today's special when we continue after a short break. 
Peace Talks Radio is the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. Today, another special we call Seeking Peace on Earth, when we revisit highlights from a past season. This time, our 2017 shows that included meeting Brian Gruber, author of War, The After Party, a global walkabout through a half century of U.S. military interventions. Gruber went back to Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan and elsewhere, some places still hurting from past U.S. military involvement. One, what you find in traveling, and you've probably found the same, is that around the world people often differentiate between the United States government and United States citizens. So there's a certain warmth and openness and curiosity about Americans and American culture versus a condemnation of specific things that the government does. Whether that's fair or not, or whether we deserve that, that's often the case. But also often there was a dynamic in the conversations. Similarly, uh, got into meet at the largest mosque in Kabul, Afghanistan with uh, Dr. Ayaz Niazi, who's the leading Islamic scholar in Afghanistan and the leader of the largest uh, mosque in the country. And I spent six hours at the mosque and two hours with him, with his son translating, sitting cross-legged in a room with a, with a group of people at, at the mosque. And there was an ability for him to, and I told him I was Jewish, for him to talk about Zionism and Israel and the United States and Obama's speech in Cairo and Iraq and our support of, of forces that were opposing democracy in some of these countries. Uh, he wanted to intellectually engage. He wanted to learn. And I was open and uh, made it clear that I was not an apologist for the United States government. But yet I explained, well, you know, you said that about Obama, but in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, you know, here are other ways to look at, you know, his record. So I found, of course, if I didn't find this, I might have been dead, but <laughs> I found that people were, uh, as, as humans, interested in engaging and open to uh, having a conversation to learn and to open and to tell their story, even though they, f they may have felt that what my government did was horrific. We've done stories on servicemen who served in Vietnam and who were dealing with PTSD, mm -hmm. and they were in a program where they go back to Vietnam right. to sort of visit their former opponents. And they're always overwhelmed now, you know, getting on 50 years later, that uh, as a rule, those people are very forgiving, very curious uh, about meeting the people that were their former opponents. And their humility uh, and uh, openness to forgiveness was so overwhelming yes. for these uh, soldiers that it really started to heal them in a surprising way. So I guess my point is, is that I'm wondering if, since you visited both places, if there's a different feel for a place like Vietnam where time heals wounds or, you know, visiting more recent places where conflicts have uh, been going on, that uh, it's still in process and it's still an irritated wound. I think there's a, a time factor and there's a cultural factor. I mean, clearly uh, in Vietnam, I interviewed a lot of young people and for them, they want to move on. And by the way, their grandparents who might have been in the war they want to move on because they're focused on their grandkids. And to this day, Vietnam looks at China as more of a long-term adversary than the United States to the degree that they're thinking of allowing us to come back to use their naval bases. 
they were at war with China on and off for a thousand years. We were a, a blip on their radar. So it is a generational thing, partly. It was a long time ago. I had an interview with a fellow, Rod Diaz, who's kind of a scion of uh, a prominent Panamanian political family. His father was the best friend and personal secretary of Omar Torrio. And uh, his two grandparent, great-grandparents were both presidents of, of Panama. And at the end of our interview, he said, you know, uh, we're Christian people, we're very forgiving, but there are some cultures in other parts of the world that might not be as forgiving. You can make a the theological argument as to how forgiving Christians may or may not be. But I think time is a factor. I think the Muslims that I met, almost without exception, through all my travels, insisted that they were peaceful shared tenets of their religion passionately with them, disavowed the actions of the Taliban, al-Qaeda, uh, ISIS, etc. But, you know, when you have political grievances on the ground, um, that some of which are still going on, where your brothers and cousins and neighbors were killed or destabilized or your country was destroyed, in effect, as it is in Iraq, then you have tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people directly affected where it really is still a current story. And the one additional factor there is that they do remember the Sykes-Picot Agreement from World War I, and they do remember a century in Afghanistan going back further to the, to the British occupation. So particularly for those who are outside the cities and not uh, educated and, and have limited understanding of Western culture, mm -hmm. they look at colonialism and Sykes-Picot and the U.S. invasion as all uh, part of a whole, and they uh, culturally and personally continue to resist and resent that in many ways. Well, they know their history better than perhaps we should know, and in some cases it sounds like they know our history better than we remember. And they have a different perspective on our history, yeah. uh, shorn of the veneer of divine providence or justification or uh, we don't have to obey the UN Charter in ways that other countries have to obey them. That's Brian Gruber, who wrote War, the After Party, a global walkabout through a half century of U.S. military interventions. A few months later in the same season of Peace Talks radio shows, we met Jessica Gans Wilder, who went from college to a job as a CIA analyst stationed in Iraq. Midway through her assignment there during the war, she had an epiphany of sorts, wound up leaving the agency, starting a nonprofit organization called the Euphrates Institute that now promotes understanding between disparate sides, especially in the Middle East. She remembered for me her days in Iraq with the CIA. The other thing that was exhausting was this feeling that it wasn't doing any good. Even when we nabbed a top insurgent leader or got someone off of the high-value target list, it, it was a never-ending fight. It seemed that for every one person we took off the list, 10 more would fill his place. And so the metaphor that kept coming to mind is, this is like catching drops of water from a leaky faucet. Great, you catch that drop of water, but it just keeps coming. And so until we focused on the roots of what was driving this, what was really at the bottom, the motivations of what was driving this insurgency, it felt like a fruitless effort that all this money and resources and manpower thrown at fighting the problem was not actually leading to the solution. And honestly, that for me, it culminated in, in being in Fallujah uh, in April 2004, 
during that first two weeks of the major, it was the first major battle in Fallujah. And seeing our Marines coming back wounded from the field and being very close to the front lines. And I just kept thinking, what it, how is this all worth it? What are we, what are we doing? You know, what, look at the impact on these soldiers' lives. Look at the money we're throwing at this. Look at the effort. Look at the fatigue and sleepless nights and danger I'm putting myself into. And for what? What was the point? And there was no end in sight. And it was just the darkest culminating point of that whole nine months of working on counterinsurgency that I felt that there was no way out. There was no way forward. And the darkness just engulfed me in a way that I had never physically and mentally and emotionally experienced before. All right, so tell us about this aha moment you had along the Euphrates River then. So a few weeks after that, low point, very, very low point, (laughs) I was staying with Special Forces um, just a few miles up the road from Fallujah and Ramadi, and their, their base is right alongside the Euphrates River. And the Euphrates River meanders all through my area of operations, you know, all through Western Iraq, this river cuts through the desert and it sort of creates a patch of green on either side. And when you, we always had helicopters getting us to and fro and you'd see this little patch of green and then everything was desert other than that. So it's just this incredible feature running through this landscape. And I'd gone for a run one evening and went up to the roof on top of the Special Forces base and their base there overlooking the river just to relax and reflect. And what I took in was such an incredible scene because it was so different than what I had just come from in the war zone with deafening bombs and the stress and the fatigue. And this picture, you know, if I could describe it, it was just this beautiful, peaceful meandering of this river. And it was so quiet that the only thing I could hear was the faint gurgling of the water and the swaying of the reeds, you know, as the wind blew through them. And it was just, I was straining my ears. I couldn't hear any human activity and obviously no bombs, no mortars, no rockets. And it was just a picture of stillness. And I realized that just a few miles downstream, this river also flowed right through downtown Fallujah, right in the midst of what had been the death and destruction and chaos. And, and the contrast of that hit me, that the, the beauty and peace of this and stillness of this river were flowing right in the middle of that war zone. And they were happening in exactly the same space at the same time. And the thought that came to me out of nowhere was, which picture will you choose if they're happening in the same space at the same time? Which one will you focus on? And it was so obvious at that moment that the river was the obvious choice because no matter how many bombs went off, no matter how much death and destruction around it, it could not stop the flow of that river. So I said to myself, I choose the river not knowing what that meant or anything, but it was just so clear. Do I want life and peace or death and destruction? Right. And so I, I, I chose it, and then that was another turning point in my life. 
So you made a decision to get out and and do what? What did you think at that time? Well, all I knew is that I didn't want to do counterinsurgency analysis anymore. And so I knew that much. And I went back just, you know, the next day or two days later, I can't remember, to Baghdad. And I went into my boss and said, I'm I'm done doing counterinsurgency analysis. I want to do something positive, you know, build something and not just tear down and take out. And so I went from get this. (laughs) I went from being a counterinsurgency analyst, which included things like having to interrogate people in Abu Ghraib and, you know, just really the dark side to being the liaison to human rights group, Iraqi human rights groups, and to political parties in advance of the first ever democratic elections. So to working on human rights and democracy. And so to go from interrogating people and fighting against them, you know, very us versus them, to all of a sudden being sitting on the same side of the table, working together with Iraqis, seeing them as partners and friends, whereas before I hadn't even seen them as, as human beings. I'd seen them as targets to take out was mind-blowing, and <laughs> to say the least. And from the very beginning, just see, just listening instead of interrogating, you know, working together instead of fighting against. And this huge shift for me and really opened up in my thought ways of connecting um, and and seeing people so completely differently that it just, yeah, just changed my whole experience there and my relationships with Iraqis. More of Jessica Gann's Wilder story at peacetalksradio.com from our May 2017 episode. May 2017 was when I was in New York City and got to see a remarkable stage production called Oslo, which recalled the -the behind-the-scenes negotiations that led to the, at the time, hopeful Oslo peace accords of the mid-1990s between Israel and Palestine. I spoke with the Oslo playwright J.T. Rogers and its director, Bartlett Schur. From having produced this program, Peace Talks Radio, since 2002, doing a deep dive into peacemaking strategies, you too can imagine how rich it was for me to have seen this production in May of 2017 in New York. So I did want to have each of you elaborate a bit on how the themes that that we've highlighted on our show really blossom on stage in Oslo. And the first one, which is established early in the play, that single individuals can, through sheer will and application of peacemaking strategies, artfully make a big difference in the pursuit of peace. Or in Oslo's case, the married Norwegian couple, uh, Mona Jule and uh, Tyrod Larson. Yes. I mean, the thing that drew me to the story to begin with, the, the historical actual bones that I built from, is that you had two individuals who were, in the terms of the power structure of the moment, politically nobodies, who had this what seemed like a crazy idea and pushed it forward and pushed it forward and it, it was both evidence which is interesting as an artist and also as a citizen of individuals having the will and energy to make a tremendous difference and also it was the realizations I worked on the show that much like in rehearsals when we're making theater you need to have rules where individuals can privately be alone to let their guard down and learn to trust each other and that is the only way that actual change between people can happen. And in essence, the reality is, as I've learned, you know, as I've learned things through this process, as Bart was just saying the same thing, of course you must have public, uh, enormous um, multi-party political negotiations and dialogues to get things done, but there also has to be 
private rooms away from the cameras where people can talk about their personal lives. Otherwise, the the only way there is change politically in any way, and certainly towards peace, is if sides in conflict are able to see the other side as human beings fully. Because when we see them as the enemy, be they Israeli-Palestinians, be they Republicans and Democrats in the political moment we're living in now, when the other side is the enemy and not a person, then nothing can move forward. Yeah, and I would also probably add to that um, that this whole notion in the play of the difference between totalism and gradualism, which we built it on, and Tyrod Larson was a sociologist, this notion of the two is kind of critical, and totalism is where you know huge groups of people very publicly on opposite sides of table um, come to some, you know, try to work out peace agreements, generally quite in public view, whereas gradualism was Taya's point of view, which was to get them into private circumstances, small groups of, of um, small numbers of people, where they could only focus on specifically single issues at a time and work on them and then move on. So he had a specific process and strategy for how to create peace. Let's hear how those concepts were rolled out on stage in Oslo. In this scene, Taya Rod Larson, played by Jefferson Mays, is hearing from Israel's Yosin Berlin, played by Adam Danheiser. In Europe, they are calling us Nazis. In Europe, where it has only been 50 years. Every day, more and more, the world turns against us, but all we do is sit at that negotiating table. Where you will achieve nothing because your negotiating model is fundamentally flawed. Exactly, so that's what I keep saying. You are trapped in a procedure saying. that is rigid, impersonal, yes, and Yes, yes, I agree completely, but this is what the Americans want us to do. And so you must do it, but also establish a second channel, you know, built on the exact opposite model, not grand pronouncements between governments, but intimate discussions between people, you know, held somewhere isolated, totally, where you and the PLO can meet alone and talk. Now, this model I can oversee. This place I can arrange. How? The resources of my institute, FAFO, my expertise, all at your disposal. Discretion guaranteed. Again, Director Bart Schur. Within that, there were other rules, not all of which we make completely clear in our show, but one of the most important was that the two participants um, were not allowed to talk about the past. They could only talk about the future. So all of the enmities and issues and complexities and things that had led them there were not the, the subjects at hand. The only subject at hand was the future. Well, and part of what you're describing, too, is this um, emphasis on the establishment of a quality of connection between the two disparate sides, which comes up in our conversations about peacemaking all the time. There are some other principles about any peacemaking process that are part of this story, too. But to me, things like eating and drinking together um, always seems to create an atmosphere of cooperation and celebration that brings people closer together. We see that a lot in this play. Well, I think it was there from the beginning, and as we started rehearsing, to Bart's credit, he said, you know, I think we need another scene of this even where it's even more central. So I built that into the play, and it's become a very key moment when 
um, Toril, the housekeeper of the manor where they're secretly negotiating outside of Oslo, brings in waffles. Now, in real, this is all based in real life. In fact, she made waffles and everyone was mad for them, which was a detail that I loved. Very human. Um, and it, it does. You can see the audience having that experience from their seats, that what we all do when we sit across from our family or our enemies and we eat and we talk, we have to do stuff. I mean, it's so fascinating. Again, the, the Clintons, with the Clintons, Hillary Clinton was at dinner with us and she kept saying, you know, the process you've described in this play is exactly how it always works. And she talked in great detail about George Mitchell and how he would sit with the two sides in the sectarian conflict in Ireland and how they wouldn't even speak to each other. They would literally speak through him for months and months. He would just have them come and they would sit and eventually they would eat and they would talk. And slowly things started to change. And it is the, you know, the universality of this sharing of food, of sharing of personal experiences. And it's, you know, it's a tremendous risk. One of the things we wanted to convey in the play, and I hope we have, is the extraordinary um, courage of the Israeli and Palestinian negotiators, both the real people and my versions of them in the play, they, they're risking their careers, in many cases their actual lives, to sit across from people they've always viewed as their enemy. And that's an amazing thing. And those are the kind of stakes, life and death stakes, that you want, you're always seeking as a theater maker. Playwright J.T. Rogers, director Bartlett Scher, who collaborated on Oslo, on Broadway in New York City in 2017. More from that very interesting conversation in our July 2017 episode that you can find at peacetalksradio.com. If you click on our March and April editions from 2017, you'll hear some timeless advice from three women who all engage in the study of how to raise girls through challenging times, including Lisa Damore, author of a book called Untangled. Also on the show, Michelle Coleman, founder of Albuquerque's Attachment Healing Center. First, though, Lisa Damore. When boys are upset, they tend to distract themselves. If something goes wrong with a friend, it's much more likely for a boy than a girl that the boy will go home, go to his room, you know, do something on his computer, go outside and shoot hoops, something like that, and he keeps it to himself. This lessens the, the reach of any one mean event. So what we see is one mean thing happens among some girls and everybody hears about it. One mean thing happens among some boys and no one may hear about it. This isn't necessarily better or worse for boys or girls. Girls get a lot more social support than boys do. I think there's a lot of boys who suffer very quietly. At the same time, girls can kind of keep things going well past a helpful point by talking and talking and talking, whereas boys often feel better faster because they're not discussing it endlessly. So it's an interesting, you know, once you kind of get into the world of bullying and disagreement among girls and boys, the data get really interesting really fast. When we look at the literature on bullying in terms of how you prevent bullying or stop bullying, what has been found by the people who really do beautiful work on this is that it's the bystanders who have power to make a difference. That um, a child who's being victimized by bullying cannot stop it. That's the nature of bullying. And the bully um, doesn't often have a very good reason to stop it. It tends to be working well for the bully. They're getting a lot of social power, and you know, with power comes you know, a degree of wanting to hold on to it. But it's the bystanders who invariably are present when bullying happens who can effectively intervene. And they can do a few different things. One, and this can be a risky thing and not something kids want to do all the time, which is fine, is they can confront the bully. You know, they can say, you know what, knock it off, you're being cruel, stop it. 
Another thing they can do, and this is a more likely thing for kids to do, is they can try to protect the victim. You know, they can say, here, you know, you come sit with us. You know, why don't, there's plenty of room at our lunch table. We'd love to have you. And another thing you can do um, as a child who watches bullying is you can go get a grown-up or you can alert an adult that that's what's happening. And, you know, it's an interesting thing to be both a psychologist and a parent. And I've tried not to have my profession be too much of a liability to my parenting, which it very much can be. But um, the work I do has shaped how I talk with my own daughters about bullying. And what I will say to them is, look, you know, if there's a kid who's being mistreated and you're there to watch it, I don't care how you feel about that kid. It is on you to do something. And I've given them, them those three options. You either need to tell the person to knock it off, you need to invite that kid to come play with you, or you need to let a grown-up know what's going on. And that's non-negotiable regardless of, um, you know, you may not like that kid, and that's fine. You still have this obligation. For all kids, it's really important to be seen. I think a lot of times teens want to pull away from their parents. It's because their parents are telling them how to live, what you did is wrong. Like it's full of all this negative and this put down and, oh, why are you listening to that music? That music is awful. We're not really working hard to join their world. Tell me about your world. What's going on? What happened today? Um, you know, I was gone for four days last night. My son is camped out on the floor of my office, and he is filling me with everything that's happened while I've been gone. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going to be 15 in a couple of months, so that's a really big deal. He wants me to know. He wants me to know everything. He comes home, and he tells me about it. I listen to him. I don't tell mm-hmm. him how to feel. I don't tell him what to do. I listen to him. Wow, that was hard. Thank you for sharing that with me. Okay, let me interrupt, because some parents listening to this right now are swooning wishing that they <laughs> had that too. So, and we've talked about this a little bit, but in your case then, in a nutshell, what allowed this to happen? Is it all this work that you've been describing then? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's okay. it's absolutely. He knows I see him. I'm not going to judge him. I'm not going to put him down. I'm going to challenge him. I'm going to call him higher to be his best. But it's that attunement piece mm-hmm. that you asked about. Um, he shares his world with me because I don't judge it. The attachment cycle is we connect. We do things, we play games, we go to dinner, we go to the movies, we play cards, right? We talk, we connect. We have all those things to connect. And then the next piece, the next part of the cycle is disruption. Something is going to happen to disrupt the attachment cycle. Um, You were late picking me up. You're late for dinner. You said you were going to do and you didn't follow through. You forgot. Natural disruptions. The next part of the attachment cycle is the most important. When I make a mistake, when I disrupt the connection, I must repair. And I come in and I take 100% ownership for, that was wrong. I should not have done that. I apologize. I'm going to work on not doing that going forward. Mm -hmm. And then you have to follow through on those actions because otherwise then it's just words. And then we connect again. But disruption is a natural part of the attachment cycle. Right. Well, it's a natural part of life. Because really what you're trying to do is offer tools for coping. Your website says, we all wish for lives without trauma or difficulty, but even if our lives contain such things, we can deal with them. The skills and awarenesses that you're giving youngsters are really supposed to help them no matter what the trauma or difficulty. Absolutely. And then they get to move forward with those skills. Right. Because life is going to continue to happen. Michelle Coleman, one of three guests you can hear more from in our two-parter on Raising Girls in April and May of 2017. Find it at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. 
highlights from just one of our seasons of shows on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, which we'll close today with part of Suzanne Kreider's conversation with artist Paul Ray, author of a book of his drawings and poems called Art, Peace, and Transcendence. There's a quote in your book I'd like you to explain. It goes like this. When we thoroughly integrate peace into all our thoughts and actions, our lives become works of art. Yes, the art is not just something you do on paper or on a canvas. Art is everything we do in life. When we do it with grace, when we do it with harmony, when we do it with a feeling of kindness and forgiveness if necessary, whatever is required by the situation. Does that mean like this interview can be a work of art? Oh, yes, certainly. Absolutely everything. Everything we do is a work of art. Yes, Hmm. yes. Yes, everything we do, even even the things that seem like terrible chores, if we can uh, see them as an opportunity to communicate with the universe and, and to really enjoy it, because we're supposed to enjoy everything. Mm. We really are. And uh, I keep going back to that feeling I had as a very young child, just that feeling of joy. And like when I'm walking down the sidewalk, my feet almost don't reach the ground. And yet I've been through my share of trials and tribulations, certainly. But still, I know that it's that joy that really endures. That is what life is really all about, what we're all seeking, something we can really live for, that we can be part of, that we can feel that we are creating with it. Joy is a river that wants to flow through us, is one of my poems. And life wants people to enjoy life. That's what we're here for. We're supposed to enjoy it. And so let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) For more with Paul Ray and more from all of our guests in this program of highlights from our 2017 season, visit us online at peacetalksradio.com. There are many more seasons of programs going back to 2002 online at peacetalksradio.com. Also, you'll find a way there for you to support this work yourself. Help the nonprofit organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated that produces this show separate and apart from your public radio outlet. Thanks to KUNM at the University of New Mexico, businesses that support our work. Yours can be one too, by the way. Write us for details, just like a spinal health and movement center of Ruben Ramirez did. He's from Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Nola Days Moses is the executive director of Good Radio Shows Incorporated. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme. For co-founder Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.